the voice of the seed. You said, as yet it has no voice. The seed, perhaps ever. A star, a trap, a tropism, a keep, a wrinkle, a tide. These voiced weirds, not so sweet stone, so liquid sweet. There, I am planting the voice of the seed. Vani Capaldeo's poem, Seed for Maya. Here at the edge of the forest, before we head in. The particular forest is in the Hayward Gallery, a group exhibition exploring our relationship to trees and forests. The exhibition is called Among the Trees, and yet we are not. At this time, we are among ourselves at home, at distance from one another, while outside it is spring, and the seeds are sprouting into radicals, and the radicals into roots, and the roots into saplings, into trees, into bud, into woods, into worlds, into the way we organise our worlds, our branches of government, our networks, our decisions, our poems. This is the voice of Holly Kofiokar, and I'll be joining you on this walk through the woods. We will stop at four artists' trees, looking at how a wood grows a little like a word, or how a poem might be perhaps a kind of portable tree, or the seed for one. We'll start here, at the edge of the wood, with Giuseppe Pannone's Albera Porta Cedro. It's a large, untreated trunk of a cedar tree. And in 2012, the artist slowly carved a rectangular doorway into the trunk, chiseling from one side of the tree right through to the other, through the bark, through the cambium, through the soft sapwood, those concentric growth rings of summer and winter and summer and winter, and into the harder pith at the centre, the heartwood. And where the chisel hit the heartwood, the artist stopped, revealing, standing in that doorway, standing there in the middle of the tree, a smaller tree. One of the tree's younger, past selves. The shape of one of those summers or winters still there. A tree is many hundreds of trees, each inside the other, each tree disappearing in the midst of itself. And this doorway cut into the cedar is, for me, a kind of time-travelling machine. And Pannone describes the tree as the perfect sculpture. But if two trees grow towards each other, the urging of the wind or the slow urgency of both trees' growth pushing their branches to just touch, the branches wearing through the bark, the bark wearing through to the cambium underneath, then something like a wedding or a magic trick takes place. One growth ring exchanging with the other growth ring, interlinking the rings of the trees, mid-air, before your very eyes. 
into one tree. The word for this event is inosculation. Inosculate. Even as we live apart, we live among each other as trees live in a forest, leaning on each other's limbs, finding and providing support, receiving and delivering damage, each of us altering around areas of injury. Or perhaps it is something like erosion, healing an unhurried harm. Or something more energetically violent, like lightning striking, not the same place twice, but two places at once, melting the trees together. And perhaps this is something like Roxy Payne's 2012 sculptural work, Rotoplasm. There are two trees. One is a little taller, one more like a sapling, and the trees strike each other. Their conjoined branches arcing like bolts of bright red light between them, as if one tree is planting the other. At only 165 centimetres high, and fabricated from stainless steel pipes and red enamel, Rotoplasm also isn't either tree at all. This work belongs to what the artist describes as his dendroid or tree-like works, and in that they are like trees. These sculptures are also like new neural pathways or ancient footpaths, like diagrams for organising taxonomy or decision-making or programming languages. And as I look at what might be a tangle of blood vessels or my own very nervous system, or two inosculated trees, joining branch to branch, sharing water and nutrients in the same way trees protect each other through their mycelial networks and the root systems. I am struck by how inosculation calls into my mind the word inoculation, how one word arcs into another, mid-air, mid-breath, before my very eyes. Inosculate. Inoculate. 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 To introduce infection into the body in order to protect it, to vaccinate it. Digging into the roots, I find these two words twisted around each other having almost entirely exchanged places. Inoculate, the word we now use to mean vaccinate, comes from the Latin to graft, to join two bodies, two trees. While inosculate, the word we now use to mean graft, to join two bodies, two trees, comes from the Latin for mouth, to make or offer a mouth, to kiss, and mutuality arcs into mortality and pleach into please, and my thoughts branch towards Alice Oswald's haunting poem, Tree Ghosts, from her 2005 collection Woods Etc. This is a poem which the poet describes as a ballad with footnotes and the footnotes each stand for a tree 
that has been cut down. A is for ash trees, the loftiest letters in the wooden alphabet. B is for beech trees and birch trees, made of many streaming, blooming, intucking, unfurling. C is for both copse and corpse, as G is for both grove and grave in which you sow a person, and he puts forth silvery threads into the air. An air is for the varying shapes made by the cavities of the mouth and throat, so that the soul is squeezed and shaken into voice. There's that kissing it better mouth again. Did you hear it? The mouth, putting forth those silvery threads into the air. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I think there's something wrong. Three small photographic prints show three small young trees that have been dug up, turned upside down and buried, crowned down, the silvery threads of their roots exposed to the air. One tree is deep in the dirt, buried in what looks like a landslide, and the second is a tangled, sandy nest built by confused or lost birds on a stretch of white sand. And the third tree, a stave in a forest, roots like an oil rag on a torch blown out. These three works, upside down tree, one, two, and three, were made by the land artist Robert Smithson in 1969, while he traveled from Alfred, New York, to Captiva Island, Florida, to the Yucatan Peninsula, Mexico. And they are distressing images of deliberate displacement, each a recording of a death, of a tree, and an entire tree-shaped world of things that lived in and around the tree. Morbidly, then, Smithson dedicates the upside-down trees to the flies, dragonflies, fruit flies, horse flies, who, he says, come and go from all over to look at the upside-down trees and peer at them with their compound eyes. I am squinting at the upside-down trees, trying to imagine what it might be like to see with those complex compound flies' eyes, which are so unlike ours, in that flies, like other insects and crustaceans, have five eyes to our two. They have two compound eyes and three simple eyes. The two compound eyes are faceted with thousands of photoreceptors, each like a smaller eye, none of which can focus or wink or impatiently roll or recognise the colour red or much of the spectrum we see at all. And so they look at a tree in a thousand ways we cannot. Then, on their forehead, arranged in a tidy triangle, are the three simple eyes. These three dots of eyes are sometimes called pigment pits, tiny black holes that pull in the light. And this is all they do. They 
can't resolve the light into forms, but they can detect the polarised light of the sun and the stars, and a particular weight of light that lifts off leaves and water, and these are lights we can't see, so we can't quite yet see what they do. But perhaps the simple eyes help a fly tilt and turn upside down mid-air, navigating between celestial bodies. Or perhaps they are clocks, metering the light in the same way the photoreceptors in a tree's leaves listen to the light, to know when it is night, when it is day, directing new growth, the opening and closing of the stomata, telling the time to breathe. So trees see, but with every leaf they see in a thousand ways we don't, and Smithson's upside-down trees are blind. The flies come to peer at them as if to ask, how will they know when the day has begun? How will they know when it ends? And these are questions that are asked in Sasha Dugdale's poem, Ten Moons, which imagines not an upside-down tree, but an inside-out night. And the flies' eyes and the tree's leaves grow wider and wider in panic. And then came the ten moons, full in the sun's glare and the seraphim. And it was light all night in the orchards and on the plains and even in the towns. And mankind rejoiced because it was now the case that the wrecking and equivocating could carry on the pale night long. Mankind rejoiced and went forth to those places. Twelve hours of light had not made it worth the while to despoil and gambled collectively on the cliff tops, and regarded the night broiling of the sea hitherto forbidden, but now opened in festival. Half the world's time unpeeled and exposed, so fruit might ripen faster, and trees flourish higher, and forced photosynthesis green all the land. Then night ramblers, night sun worshippers, Night motorists fanned out and made the most of spectral light, which bleached out stars and even the cosy old moon herself, who had once held a sickle broadside to the sun and now was a hollow daytime shadow. Only a few old believers slept, hand in hand, shoulder to breast, as if their lives depended on it, knowing yet that the morning would bring nothing because the day knew no beginning and had no end. I feel as I read that poem, I can almost see a bruise beginning to form at the back of my eye, my simple eye, bright yellow, bright green. If we dig down through the roots of a word, we often find them tangled with the roots of another word, another wood of language that has grown into and out of itself. If you kneel here with me, dig with me, through the soil under the word yellow, you'll notice the word or the roots of the word begin to sound something like gel, which is a very old, very bright root that grows into gold as well as glow and glimmer and glitter. But also, if you look up at the tree, 
There, along a different branch, green, and along another, chlorophyll, coming into bright green leaf. But with that grows chlorine and also melancholy, a sadness that takes its name from that greenish-yellowish bile produced by the gallbladder. Gall growing from that same shared root as gold, as glow, as green, as melancholy, as glad, as glee. Up here at the crown of the yellow tree, it's a complex canopy. It's keen and keening, precious, poisonous. Now, if we climb back down to the roots, it becomes a bit stranger, a bit trickier to tell what is what, but another tree grows nearby and you can see its resemblance with the yellow tree, or you can hear it. As you get closer, you can hear that old yellowed root gel growing instead into nightingale and into garland, an old English word meaning to sing, or the word galder, meaning a spell or incantation, and also in the noise of a gale, all these things which sing and cry and shout and transform the wood with music and magic and fear. Where one tree grew into yellow, the other grew into yell. And I think both species of tree are growing here in the dapple of Mariella Neudecker's new tank work and then the world changed colour breathing yellow. Commissioned by the Dulwich Picture Gallery in 2019 as part of an exhibition of landscape paintings by the Norwegian artist Harold Solberg, Neudecker's acrylic box contains a small portable pine forest. It's seeded from the eerie evening light of Solberg's 1906 painting, Fisherman's Cottage, and that late light in the branches of that forest are conjured here in three dimensions, from salt and water and fibreglass. A spotlight floods the little tank with yellow, and it's a greenish-yellowish yellow, as much gold as it is chlorophyll. It's a landscape I hesitate to step into, and I can't, as the artist reminds us you are both inside the forest and clearly out of it. If I try to lead my eye through the branches, I have to look through my own eye's reflection on the tank's thick glass, so I am both a part of the woodland and apart from it. I am reminded of this short poem of looking and lacking and still looking by Emily Dickinson. A lane of yellow led the eye unto a purple wood whose soft inhabitants to be surpasses solitude. If bird the silence contradict, or flower presume to show in that low summer of the west, impossible to know. And this greenish, yellowish haze leads my eye into the tank. But there is none of yellow's yell here. There's no noise or song or even wind. And it's impossible to know if the soft inhabitants of this small wood are silent because they are under a spell or a toxic cloud. And if I am a witness to that, 
if I am responsible. Or if it is that we, wherever you are in this wood with me, must learn to look again. Learn to look like a fly or like a leaf or like a whole noisy springtime of yellow flowers all looking and listening and talking to each other about how the day ends and how the day begins. Mm-hmm.